feel like I was never physically strong enough to protect my mum in these circumstances. Being physically incapable to protect my mum is something that's just like haunted me for a very long time. Seen is a podcast about the importance of being visible, of being seen when people like you don't exist in the mainstream. For some, that can mean being seen and embraced by the medical fraternity and the patients you serve. For others, it could be writing books that are read by the very people they're about, winning awards and being accepted as a literary giant. Or it could mean something different, something closer to the heart and way more personal. On today's episode, we're going to meet a groundbreaking athlete who needed to be seen by three people. His nanny, his daughter and his mother. And a warning, this episode talks about domestic violence and suicidal thoughts. I'd go to visit her at the hospital and my brother and I would, you know, bring her flowers and everything. And that kind of never stopped because she had so many health issues after that because of the environment that we had at home with her ex-partner. For seven years, mum was in a domestic violent situation. He was very violent with her. Ellie, did you think that influenced your desire to be strong? To be Massively. To, yeah. Elia Green is a retired professional rugby sevens player. In 2022, Elia became the first Olympian to come out as a transgender man. Like a lot of exceptional people, his origin story is fascinating. He was born in Fiji to Fijian parents who were experiencing hardship. A white Polish woman called Yolanta and her husband, author and rally car commentator Evan Green, living and working in Fiji at the time. It wasn't like a, a plan to adopt me at all. She was really just helping my, my birth mother. She wasn't there to take ownership of her baby or anything. It was just, I want to help you to raise your baby. So my mum went to the supermarket and bought her everything that she'd need. Gave her some money just to, you know, to start her off, to give her the confidence to, to keep keep her baby mm. and um, she just said to my mum I'm not going to keep the baby the baby will go to an orphanage I think my mum just had a breakdown <laughs> and she said uh, I can't let this happen like I'll, I'll at least look after your baby until you've recovered and I'll bring the baby back to the village and so that's exactly what she did it was a very emotional moment of when we went back to the village because I, my dad actually took a video of the whole thing it was just an emotional, emotional moment where it's just me getting passed to, you know, the Fijian family, back to my, my Polish mum and back and forward, back and forward. And then the last pass was to my, my Polish mum, Yolanta. When I have seen it, I've watched it with my mum and I guess it's just, I can't help but think how lucky I am. I, I sometimes think like, wow, why me? Why did I get chosen? We used to say all the time, like, we were destined to be together. And I, I might sound a bit corny, but I really do think, like, everything was meant to happen the way it did when we found each other. I'm Yumi Steins, and this is Seen, a podcast about trailblazers who might not have had a role model exactly like them, but who carved out space and rose to excellence anyway. We start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record, whose culture includes a rich tradition of playing games and sporting excellence, the Camaraygal and Gadigal people and their elders past and present. Before we get to those three important people Elia Green needed to be seen by, let's talk about one person he saw as an impressionable child watching the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. Oh 
Forest is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. I remember watching it with my mum and my brother and it was just silence because there was just no words for that performance and the strength and the power that she that she shows in her love for her culture is unbelievable. Growing up, Elia wanted to be like the athletes he saw on television. I told my mum that I was going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to run for Australia. I'm going to win gold. My whole room was like a gallery of who I was going to become. And I had all these pictures of athletes that really inspired me, but the one thing they had in common is that they were all really strong black athletes. And of course, the main athlete up on the wall was Cathy Freeman. She's a massive, massive driver in why I was just so focused on getting to the Olympics, like Cathy. Before Cathy Freeman, before the turbulent household, before wanting to be like the strong athletes he saw on television, Elia had an idyllic upbringing in Fiji. Elia Green's mother, Yolanda, had a deep love and respect for the Fijian culture. At home, she would speak Fijian and made sure that their family was engaged meaningfully with the community. She also understood that Elia and his brother, who was also adopted, needed living, active connections with Fijian culture. One woman in particular helped shape Elia's connection to his Fijian roots. He calls her Na. She initially was a nanny to us in Fiji. My dad wasn't too well, and then he was also writing his book. So my mum needed some help with us, obviously, had two babies. So she hired this beautiful nanny, and, and her name's Joanna. She taught us how to speak Fijian at home. She took us into the village quite regularly. Every time we were in the village, we were only allowed to speak Fijian. She bought us our own personally made Afrocombs doing Fijian dances at home, singing in Fijian, everything. So the importance of keeping our culture strong, the Nana became a huge part of our life from the very beginning, and she still is. During this time, Evan's health began to deteriorate and he was diagnosed with cancer. After five years in Fiji, Elia's family packed up and moved to the central coast in New South Wales. Shortly after, Evan passed away. Dealing with the grief, Yolanda also had to adjust to being a solo parent and the culture shock of their move. At the time, most of the Central Coast was typically made up of white nuclear families, so a white woman with two Fijian kids attracted scrutiny. Up until this point, Yolanda hadn't really explained to the kids that they were adopted. Elia and his brother were just like, "Mm, this is just our normal. One of her girlfriends said to her, yo, you got to tell the kids, like, it's it's getting ridiculous. Like, they're going to go to school soon and then there'll be so many questions asked. You just got to, you just got to tell them. So she sat us down and I remember this so vividly. She had a book. The parents in the book were, were white and the kids were brown. And her way of explaining it to us was through the book. And then she said, so I didn't birth you out of my body, but... I know that we were destined to be together and I'm lucky to be your mummy. And like in a very simple way and the book, that's how she explained to us. Do you remember your reaction? Yeah, I was like, cool. I didn't really like change anything. (laughs) Cool, what are we watching on TV tonight? what's for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. It wasn't really like a big deal. 
But at school, it was a big deal. My most memorable moments of experiencing racism at school was probably just people making comments about my hair, my skin, why is my mum white and you're black? You know, all the things that kids can come up with. Elia was assigned female at birth, but at five years old was presenting quite masculine, which meant that at school, the other kids teasing didn't just end at racism. Most, like a lot of people that I hadn't met before thought I was a boy. And I used to get really upset about it because in primary school, it was used as kind of like a bullying tool for, from other kids. I can remember this time when a boy forced me into the boys' toilets and he said, that's where you belong, in the boys' toilet. And then he pushed me in there and then I was, I was really distraught. Mm. And I went and found my brother and then my brother beat him up in the middle of the school oval. <laughs> <laughs> Elia would come home from school and tell Yolanda the hurtful things the kids would say. And Yolanda would write up sassy comebacks for Elia to say to those kids. She was relentless in her allyship. And Elia wanted to return that energy. They say when it comes to success, goal setting is everything. I told my mum that I was going to go to the Olympics so that I could buy her house and I wanted to buy her dream car. That was like my goal. I just wanted mum to have everything. I wanted her to have everything. So I'm like, shit, how am I going to be rich? What do, I, what do I need to do? Okay, you need to be really good at something. Well, sport. I'm not really that academic at the moment. I'm not doing that great at school. I'm going to be a good, really great athlete. <laughs> and so that's what inspired me to want to make the Olympics. Elia wanted to run for Australia. On his bedroom wall, he would write up his goals, his running times, and hang up pictures of all the athletes he looked up to. On this wall, you'd see strong black athletes like Carmelita Jeter, Asafa Powell, Maurice Green, Patrick Johnson, and of course, Kathy Freeman. And like the, the physical build and then was something that I wanted to work towards all the time. Mm. From a very young age, like I just wanted to become the most strong, masculine version of myself that I could be. What does being strong mean to you? What, does it, what are the connotations of being strong? Well, in a physical sense to me, it was like I have to be able to lift heavier. I can lift heavier than that. I got my goal, yes, but I'm going to do 20 kilos more on the bench. I'm going to do more, more, more. Nothing is ever enough. At this point, the strong black athletes on Elia's wall were just people to look up to, admire and work towards their physiques. But Yolanda had a way with making dreams come true. And for Elia's 10th birthday, he got to meet the one and only Kathy Freeman. Mum hadn't really told me that we were going to meet her. We just went there and I was like, oh, I'm so excited to watch her run. And then Mum said to me at the end, um, but we're going to go to the warm-up track and then I see Kathy walking towards us and I was just like, my whole jaw dropped. I think I thought I was going to faint. <laughs> and um, she gave me a poster with happy birthday, Elia. Um, I hope all of your dreams come true. Signed and then it was a big picture of her with like First Nations art in the background and a big Nike tick because she that was her main endorsement at the time. And it's, it was on my bedroom wall and I, I slept underneath it because it was just like, I was, it was never leaving me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, how did my mum manage to do this? I never met Yolanta, but the phrase tiny but mighty comes to mind. You know, she would really, really, really have a lot to say. <laughs> like I one this is one tournament that I'm I was I'm pretty traumatized by. It was like a big event for like 
for that time, I think maybe 16 or something. I think I was talking to some of the other athletes in the warm up and like I had my headphones on and I think I got silver. My mom in the car home gave me the biggest blow up lecture of my life. She said, um, you would have won if you were actually focused. You skip around like a fairy and you're not focused. You're talking to all the other athletes like you're not really there to achieve what you're there to achieve. Everything she was saying is very valid. But then she snapped my headphones and then threw them out the window <gasps> and told me to walk home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My brand new headphones. I just got them for like, uh, for like my birthday or something. Yeah, she snapped them in half and threw them out the window. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I'm not trying to demonize my mom at all because she is like queen. But I'm just saying this was the kind of, I guess, drive behind why I just couldn't not do well. I just knew that she had so much faith in me of being better. I don't know if it was because, like, you know, I just feel like she she just gave me the world. So I want to show her that she made a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> so you know this podcast is called Scene. And, Elia, you needed to be seen by your mum. Absolutely. So much. Yes. I I was a little show pony. You were, but a show pony to an audience of one. Mum would be watching, like, on the fence, and I, the whole race, I watched her. I didn't even look straight. (laughs) And it happened to, like, stay with me as I grew older as an athlete. Because sometimes, like, my coach even said to me, Elia, do you realise that you run with your head slightly turned to the right? All the time, even like, and, and you're white and you're running with your head straight. And this was like, uh, this stuck, like really stuck with me for years. Because you were checking to see if she was watching. Yeah, but it stuck with me that I always had to like tilt my head a bit, to, but it was just because I was always looking for my mum in the crowd. And the thing is, Elia's mum was always there. She never missed a meet. When Yolanda was first diagnosed with breast cancer when Elia was 10, it was one of the scariest experiences of his life. Seeing her lose her hair and everything and just seeing her so sick because the treatments back then were just like really harsh. The chemotherapy then was pretty brutal. Just throughout that whole process, yeah, it was really seriously traumatic. But at the same time, I loved caring for her. At this point, Yolanda had repartnered, but Elia wanted to be her carer. I'd uh, make her meals when she was in bed. I'd go to visit her at the hospital and my brother and I would, you know, bring her flowers and everything. And that kind of never stopped because she had so many health issues after that because uh, also of the environment that we had at home with her ex-partner. He was very violent with her. He was very physically violent with her and emotionally and financially, everything. For seven years, mum was, yeah, in a domestic, violent situation. Mm. Our household was, yeah. Mm. That was between the ages of about six to 12. And then we, ha- we ended up um, running away to Melbourne. Ellie, do you think that influenced your desire to be strong? To be Massively. To s- yeah. Yeah. I think, like, something that I've, that, I guess, a trauma that I'm working through all the time is that I feel like I was never physically strong enough to protect my mum in these circumstances, which happened weekly. Being physically incapable to protect my mum is something that's just like haunted me for a very long time. I think of that sometimes when I was playing rugby, Mm. I would imagine that I think of everything that he did to my mum and I'd use that when I'm going into contact, which is really bad, but like 
somehow I like it was I'm not an angry or a violent or aggressive person at all. But when I think of that kind of thing, like it, it brings out a different side to me, which mm. is kind of what kind of what gave me like a bit of fire. So in terms of being in the gym and wanting to also be re- physically strong was helping with my mental health because of the trauma that happened throughout all that as well. So as somebody who's still in high school, there's a lot of focus and attention on fitness diet, which can be tricky for a teenage person, and also just your body and your physical appearance. Was dysmorphia starting to rear its head for you? Yes, not as strongly as it did as I got older. I didn't actually want to wear a shirt ever, especially when I was playing with my brother. I guess like when I started to realise that my brother and I are, are quite, are, we are different in our anatomy. Like I was like, okay, we are, we are definitely different, but I don't feel different to you. But then I, I was starting to realise as I got older that, you know, my body's changing and it, it, I am different. I can remember I like, I really struggled with going through puberty because that meant my body was changing. I just, I didn't know how I felt about it. It was a bit alarming. But I, I had really, on, like, I just kept it to myself, like, because, I mean, how could I possibly have this conversation? Like, it it's, doesn't feel safe at all. Mm. It wasn't something that I could explore because it's not something that was really been talked about. I didn't see it. It's not something you talk about at school. I don't even remember seeing much, like, many different gender identities on TV at that time. Like, yes, it was a lot of, the like, the queer community was quite talked about and, my, a lot of my mum's friends were gay, but it wasn't something often that I saw like trans people when I was a young kid. I have no idea how my mum would react to this. Like at the time, that's what I was thinking. It, But as an adult, I learnt about my mum that she loves me no matter what, regardless of who I am or what I'm doing. She's she's always loved me for me. And one thing she said to me was, even if you weren't my child, you're someone that I would want to be best friends with. And it's the truth. When Elia graduated from high school, things were on the up. Yolanda had survived breast cancer. Elia got a running coach and was going to meets. He also began his degree in nursing, inspired by his mum. So when his cousin called and said, hey, do you want to try out for the Rugby Sevens team? It was like asking someone who never sang to join a band. Yes, he was a great runner, but rugby? He barely even knew the rules. And I went there with my hat backwards, you know, like, I don't know what I was thinking, like little, little cool kid, let's just here for, here for the lols, here yeah. for fun. So weeks later, when Elia receives a letter in the mail saying something along the lines of, hey, we're interested in you to maybe join our squad. I was like, what? I almost fell off my chair and mm. so did my mum. Mm. And then that's when mum said, well, go get it, bub, like, this won't happen, you know, these opportunities won't come up every day. And, you know, worst case, you don't make it, you go back to training. That's it. I was pretty shocking. Even to this day, one of the co- my coaches, Tim Walsh, he says, like, it was actually hilarious to see <laughs> you when you first came to Sevens because, yeah, it you was... You didn't know what you were doing. No. No, amazing. But, so what happened? You got through. Yeah, I got through. It took a while for Elia, formerly a solo artist like Kathy Freeman, for instance, to understand the rhythms of playing a team sport. But through work and grit and fitness regimes that frankly I find unimaginable, Elia and his team qualified for the 2016 Rio Olympics. That was a dream come true. It was something that 
mum and I had manifested for so long. So to be in that moment, in that stadium, in that village, even just at the airport going to Brazil, (laughs) it was just like, I felt like a a kid again. I felt like a little kid getting the uniform. Oh my gosh, I remember (laughs) unpacking it all, thinking it was Christmas. Like it was unbelievable. The excitement, you couldn't wipe the smile off everyone's faces. Because I could see how much all of this has paid off. But this was only going to be the beginning of it. <laughs> Winning the gold was going to be the real, like, cherry on top. And mm. we were only going for that. From New Zealand, right under the post. Australia, no, it's theirs. It's their gold medal. When you're playing that game, did you know that you had won the gold medal when the siren sounded? No. I knew it was very close and it was it was going to be the difference between, like, a tr- one try and so I knew if I looked at the score, it would just frazzle me. So I just decided not to look at it at all until the whistle blew. So when the whistle blew and I looked on the... I didn't even actually look at the screen. I just looked at the reaction of my teammates. <laughs> and then I looked at the score and I was like, oh my God. And then I just looked for my mum because she's wearing this massive yellow hat. And I just had to look for her. Was that a moment of being seen for you, Elia? It was. It was being seen by by my beautiful mummy and also not just that but seen by the world mm. it was a massive massive like step for rugby sevens at that stage you know being the first time in the olympics it was a massive impact and it to be seen like all over the world in that moment in our game during this time yolanda had been diagnosed with cancer again this time in her lungs and eventually her brain Ilya finally winning gold at the Olympics with his mum watching in the crowd was a moment to be utterly cherished. The thing that I'm most grateful about that rugby gave me was the happiness that it brought my mum. And I know I talk about my mum so much, but it's she's such a huge part of me. She's my heart and soul. And from the beginning of my career to the very end when she passed away, she absolutely just lived for those moments of me running out on the field. She just, she didn't miss a beat. Mm. And uh, I think that like that just never changed from the time that she first saw me run to the time she was sitting in the crowd at the Olympics. Like it just never changed her, her joy watching me run on the field, on the track, everywhere. In 2018, Yolanda passed away. Shortly after, I remember seeing Elia on social media talking about not getting selected for the next Olympic team, and it was pretty raw. I'd only met Elia once at that time, but keenly saw these feelings of rejection and hurt. They said to me that I wasn't the same athlete anymore and that there's other players that are better than me now. It was very hard because like, I I really felt like I let let my teammates down. I let so many people down and I let my mum down like because I couldn't help but think like oh my goodness what would she say to me right now because Mm. she she was such a critique in everything that especially when it came to sport Mm. and um my mum would be so like have so many questions to ask me about that like what did you do wrong is what she I feel like she would have been saying so I just went into shutdown I couldn't even leave my house for months after that meeting I, I was just so disappointed in myself in every way that I hadn't, I hadn't made the team. I lost a lot of sense of self. You'd also lost your mum. Yes, and something that we shared together very strongly. 
all the grief in so many different parts of life caught up with me. It, w- it was a really dark time because it wasn't just the not getting picked. It was more so just the feeling of failure. Yeah. I know I have so much more to offer than just being an athlete, but I think just because this is it's just it was really driving me to a, like a very bad place. So I knew something had to change. My poor, my poor fiance, I put her through a lot in the sense of like my mental health since August last year. You know, we've like, I've been in and out of a hospital, you know, tried to take my life. It's been really, really, really full on. And then in between all this, the birth of my daughter. Talking about this and having these discussions and sharing my voice is actually what's healing me because this is nothing what I was like a couple months ago. I was being admitted into psychiatric ward. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't open a window. I couldn't open a blind. Be shaking on the ground. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one that is going through something like this, this isolation, you know, all these mental health illness and mm. everything. So, The stepping stones that have helped you towards your recovery, Elia, besides being able to talk about it, do you have any moments when you went, oh, that's when I started to turn it around or that particular thing really helped? Looking at my daughter. In particular, I had a moment with Waitui and it was when she came to visit me in hospital and I started to have flashbacks of me going to the hospital to see my mum. Like, I've never, I've never forgotten it. And I, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, she's coming to visit me in hospital, like... I don't want her to remember this because babies remember like things, you know, they might not physically remember being there, but mm. like I feel like it is stored in their, you know, somewhere in their, in their, in their memory. And so I, I thought of her then and I, I said like, this really has to change. My beautiful fiance lost her mum to suicide, so I can't bring this kind of trauma back into this household. She doesn't deserve that, neither does my daughter. Kids mirror your behaviour, they mirror you. You know, I've mirrored, I've mirrored my mum in a lot of ways when it comes to grieving and mental health and in a lot of positive ways, but they mirror. So I, I, that really snapped me out of a state. And since then, I've really been working my way up the hill. Tell me about when you felt ready to talk about your transition publicly. It was actually the day that I looked at Waitui and... I looked, uh, yeah, I looked at Waitui and I, I said to myself, I don't want you ever to think that I was too nervous, too ashamed to, to tell the world that I'm your dad. Everywhere that we go, I'm her dad. On her birth certificate, I'm her dad. Like everything says I'm her dad and I know in my heart and so does she. Except for I just, I'm too scared to tell the world because I don't know how they're going to react to that. It was really unbelievable when I saw how much love that I got back. Because it was, like, almost nothing but love. So Elia was seen truly as himself through the adoring eyes of his baby and had been seen on the medal dais getting gold by his mum. But there was one more person whose acceptance would mean the most to him. Following his public announcement, Elia decided to take a trip back to Fiji, back to the village to see his na the nanny, friend and carer who'd helped look after him and his brother for their first five years. And this is a 75-year-old woman who doesn't have a phone at the time, not to know social media. Yep. She had no idea that I had 
gone through this transition. She didn't know I had a daughter. She didn't know I just got engaged. She didn't know any of this. So mm. she was really just going to see me and then be like, here I am. <laughs> it's a lot to take in <laughs> yeah, for now. like, exactly. I was holding my baby and I, I saw my nana and she looked at me and and then she just kind of, she looked away because I don't think she, she recognised me, mm. right? And she was sitting with the other elders on her mats that she weaves and then she looked a second time and then she just stared at me for about three seconds and then her face just, like burst with the biggest Fijian smile I ever did see and then the tears just running down her face and she looked at me and she said my baby my baby my baby boy you're home and then that's it it was just the most the most special moment one of the most special moments I ever ever experienced and then she held my baby and she hugged Vanessa talked about being a mum you know and it was just like that was truly special wow so she saw you and she said my boy my baby my baby boy and the whole time we were in the village, no one there addressed me with the wrong pronouns. Mm. And I hadn't even said a single word about how I identify. They literally saw me naked with clothes on. And that's it. They just saw me as I am without zero explanation. Elliot, you've had a career where you're so visible, you're literally in the public eye and people literally looking at you and seeing you. What do you think it means to be seen? To be seen in general is putting yourself in a vulnerable situation, but also seen for others. And that comes down to race, gender, talent. It's it's in all categories. Mm. So I think being seen is something that others can others can also see and believe it. To be seen is nothing that should be taken for granted and I don't never take this for granted, the fact that my voice is able to be speaking to you right now and being heard by the people listening. And I'm sure there are so many out there that can relate even in just one part of what I've been talking about. And being seen is just so important. It can save lives, it can make someone feel accepted, it can make someone feel loved and it can make someone feel like they're not alone. This has been Seen, hosted by me, Yumi Steins, created by Bernadette Fungnam Wian for Audiocraft in collaboration with SBS. From Audiocraft, this show was produced by Bernadette Fungnam Wian and Cassandra Steeth. Our junior producer is Alison Zwang. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta and executive producer is Kate Montague. The SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple and Max Gosford. Our podcast artwork is created by EBO Studios. Special thanks to Jasmine Mee Lee. Music is by Yo. And if anything came up for you listening to this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13114. Hi, it's Elliot again. What you're about to hear next is what it sounded like when I walked into the village and first saw my na again after a long time in between seeing each other. And the one thing that Nana is going to recognize is the baby Elia that she's always known. And it was truly one of the happiest moments of my life.